of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Just after 6 o'clock on a beautiful morning. I don't know if you've been out yet, but uh, that north breeze sure blew in some comfortable air along with pretty good rain and uh, lots of lightning. Fortunately, none of the high winds and hail, at least in the areas that I talk to, uh, you know, I, th- I think it was just a, a good storm as far as getting some good moisture. We'll talk to James in a second and, uh, you know, lots of other folks and, and learn a little bit more. But uh, anyway, let's get back to the phone calls. We're going to talk to uh, Faye and James and Mary and Lee. And Faye is up first. Good morning, Faye. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I have problem with these red ants. It's The nest is the size of a child's plastic swimming pool you know the circle it's all bare and the first thing i did was pour orange oil in it about what seven years ago Uh uh-huh it's just it's grown i mean they're coming up all all holes you know right Uh on top and uh, i poured gasoline on them a gallon Mm -hmm. and i've used de and i've used i went and Got some of that boric acid, right? And then I tried some cornmeal, and there's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're, they're tough. Out of one opening now, instead mm-hmm. of about you know fifty or seventy five little holes, they multiplied. Well, oh yeah, and they are you know they they are one of the most damaging ants out there. There's just not a whole lot of good about them, except uh, in the case of my ranch, they eat some plants that I don't like. But realize that what the their biology, so to speak, the way they live is underneath that big bare area that you're seeing on the surface, there is an underground chamber. And the ants don't actually feed on the leaves that they harvest. They take the leaves down in there and they actually feed on a fungus that grows on the leaves and that believe me there are people lot smarter than you and me that are out there trying to figure out what to do because they're a nuisance for us but people in the plywood and lumber and paper industries in east texas they do millions and millions of dollars in damage where they're trying to replant little pine seedlings and there's a huge amount of money has been spent on trying to figure out how to eliminate them and it hadn't produced anything except a lot of unfortunate poisons. But the two yeah, like things, um, and a few others. But yeah, uh, this stuff is twenty dollars, yeah. and I bought it, but I haven't used it. I'm scared to use it, so I want to return it. Uh, I would from the plant house in uh, Kerrville. I don't think there's much of that stuff around. No, but there's would... not. Not let let me tell you the two things that people have had success with, and. Oh. First of all, it's simply flooding the mound. Uh, Turn that hose on slowly. 
put it right in the center of the mound. Sometimes you actually, if you take a uh, piece of rebar or a piece of small pipe, three eighth inch or you know half inch pipe, and get and just poke straight down in that bare area, you will about four to six inches down. You'll frequently feel it kind of break into that large chamber. And I don't know whether it actually drowns them or whether it just makes them move, but just simply flooding it. Uh, with water? Yeah, with water. Just with water. Just with water. Now, it almost it takes enough water that uh, hopefully it's somewhere that you can drag a hose to it. I'd hate to haul oh, yeah. that much water. Yeah, I can't. But that is one thing. The second way that people have successfully combated them is with sulfur. And sulfur is a natural fungicide. And if you can get it down into their little cultivating area, yeah, then the fungicide, it will kill the fungus that the ants feed on. And that frequently wipes out the mound. The way you go about doing it, you get the what we call wettable sulfur, the sulfur 50W, and dust a pretty fair amount of it. Uh, believe it or not, you're... Your colony is is still fairly small. I've got them on my property where it's 10 or 12 feet in diameter, that circle. But you would put probably 3 to 5 pounds of wettable sulfur just dusted over the top of that bare area and a little bit further out, and then water that thoroughly because that's going to carry the sulfur down into the ground. Um, Now, uh, if you're successful, you know, punching a hole down into that chamber, you can pour some directly in there and uh, then flood it. But those are the two uh things that have most consistently eliminated the mounds for people that I talk with. Okay, the first one was flooding it by itself, or then buying the wettable sulfur and sprinkling it, and then do you flood it again? Well, just you want to you want the sulfur to be carried down into that chamber, and so dry, right? It should be dry when you put it on, and then probably be best to set a yard sprinkler or something like that, one of those little whirly bird types, and just run it for, you know, as long as you can, just to, just to wet that sulfur and carry it down, 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 down into the ground. But start with the just flooding. That, yeah, I have to say probably 95% of the people I talk to are successful with the water alone. But, you know, I'm with you. I know people who have tried diatomaceous earth. They've tried. Uh, spinosad, and you kill a lot of the ants, but you never seem to get the colony totally. You never seem to get the queen, and then it just pops right back up again. But the flooding, like I say, I don't know that it kills them, but it makes them go somewhere else. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for, um, I'll do this. I'll do, and try. let me report First back flooding. to me how it works. And then the wettable sulfur. All right, well, this is really bothering me, and it's it's very you know, it's 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 terrible. Well, they're hard on your roses. They're hard on crepe myrtles. They're they have their favorites as to far as the plants they eat. Unless they go what 150 yards to uh, oh, they will, they will. Oh my and god. You'll go out there, and they'll have, and you'll see them just marching along. They're much more active at night than during the day, oh, and really? uh, they're they're black oh. in color. If you look at the head, they have big jaws that they use just go snip, snip, snip on those leaves. But yeah, they will they will go a long way to find uh, your favorite plants to well, work on. I don't know what they carry. Do they have a little venom in them? Because one of them crawled up my shoe uh-huh. under, on the inside of my knee. Yep. And I'm telling you, it hurt, and it hurt for a week or two. Well, and anyways, yeah, it left a spot. 
Yeah. Yeah, so if if that what... happens again, get a little comfrey and put on there. But uh, they okay. they're not aggressive like a fire ant. They're not out there just to deal yeah. you all the misery they can. But if you um, right. if you get them in the wrong place and highly agitated, they will deal you a uh, I guess it's a bite rather than a sting and uh, very uncomfortable. So hopefully you can avoid that in the future. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mr. Webster. Thank you very much for help. Uh... Um, I hope it works. <laughs> you let me, get back to me and let me know how it does, Faye. Danke, Shane. Bye. <laughs> um, okay, uh, James is up next. Uh, good morning, James. Good morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sir. First I'd, like to, first, I'd like to commend you for your organic approach to uh, plant growing and uh, tell you that uh, I, I've had su- such good luck with, uh, with your recommendations. I've been following you since the mid-'80s. And uh, I, I was very, very young back then. <laughs> well, yeah, I know that well. you uh, you had some some other folks that you talked to. I think it was in Houston, and uh, uh-huh. I don't remember their names. Some good old boys, and I miss I miss those uh, days that you were talking with those folks. Well, that was that good. was uh, that that was back when we had uh, our uh, Tom Tynan, our home improvement guy, and anyway, Tom Tom was and is a great guy, but he's over in Florida now. But the guy I talk to every every Saturday at around eight o'clock, or most every Saturday, is Howard Garrett. And he's up in Dallas, and uh, sure. one of the smartest guys I know. But yeah, I, I miss talking to old Tom, and uh, we we still communicate now and then, and every now and then somebody who knows him, uh, he's headed. In, I think uh, one of the community college districts over there in their uh in their construction trades program so he's still around still going strong and i'm sure he would be be very complimented to know that you still remember him favorably yes sir well i'm 63 so i can remember a lot of stuff from back then <laughs> i wanted to ask you also about uh, where do you get your source for natives like like the comfort you were talking about where do you get that stuff you know, we have, because, you know, our nursery's grown, we buy a pretty high volume. Um, we've been able to talk a few of the growers into producing more native material. Trees and shrubs, there are a couple of companies around that specialize in that. There's a company up in Austin called Natives of Texas. And I, I don't know, they may be wholesale as well, and retail as well. But uh, it's just, you know, an ongoing search. And things that propagate and grow fairly quickly, uh, we've been able to talk several local growers into producing more and more of them. But some of them, I can still give you a long list of plants that uh, I wish people propagated and grew more of. And, and surprisingly, some of the natives are among the harder plants to propagate and the slower things to grow and in this world, most of your wholesale nursery growers are trying to produce the highest volume as quickly as they possibly can, which I guess makes economic sense. But I think there's a good market out there for more native material. But it's just uh, it's an ongoing challenge to get them to try one of our biggest wholesale growers. Uh, their fellow that I talked to over there told me that, hey, if we can't sell 20,000 plants of that variety the first year, then it's hard for me to get to people even and consider it. And uh, that's a lot of plants to uh, talk people into growing who are not used to a particular plant. So getting native materials is an ongoing challenge. It gets a little better every year. But, um, again, there are a lot of things that I love that are just very difficult to find in the trade. So maybe the best thing for me to do is just contact you and uh, 
see if you have any uh, up-to-date uh, info. Well, if you're looking for a particular plant, yeah, you're welcome to call and we'll, uh, you know, it's people always ask why they say, well, why do you do ads for your competitors talking about people like Fanex? And I tell them they're not competitors. They're just friends in the same business. So we're, we're pretty free right. about, yeah, we're pretty free about sharing sources where people are looking for things, but no, any, anytime you got a particular plant that you'd like to try to locate, uh, we'd love to help you try to find it. Yes, sir. Uh, I also had a question about, uh, Carpenter ants, you do the same thing with them with the wettable sulfur? No, carpenter ants uh, are a whole different story. We go after carpenter ants with orange oil. And uh, just a mixture of orange oil and water and spraying wherever you see them. Uh, orange oil is a solvent. It's not really the thing that kills them, but it softens their exoskeleton. And then various uh, bacteria and fungi in the environment kill them. Uh, one of my favorite stories is a friend here in San Antonio had wooden shutters on her home. And she started noticing carpenter ants. And I told her, you know, make your orange oil fairly strong, maybe six ounces to the gallon, and spray those shutters thoroughly, which she did. And then another mutual friend who happens to be a very good builder told her, hey, those things are dangerous. You need to get uh, get a professional exterminator out there to get rid of them. And he came out, took her shutters off, and said, lady, I don't know what you did, but you killed all the ants. You don't need us. So carpenter ants, um, about six ounces of orange oil to a gallon of water, sprayed wherever you see them. Now, in mixing your orange oil that strong, be careful not to get it on green foliage if you can avoid it, because it will burn plants to some extent. So it's not something you just go spray a big area, but if you've got carpenter ants in a deck or siding or something like that, uh, your orange oil and water mix normally will take care of them very well. Yes, sir. Uh, I had a question also about snails. I have I kill about three hundred a day. Okay. Well, there are. Yeah, there are several kinds of snails. There is one which has sort of an expanded shell. I always say it looks kind of like an ice cream cone as opposed to being a very flat shell. And those are actually good snails. They're called decolate or some people say decolate snails. They actually eat the eggs of our more damaging snails. Now, the big old European brown garden snail and uh, the little bush snails, those guys are very damaging, but uh, the ones that have that kind of expanded shell, they are not normally a problem. But um, the best way to get them, uh, if you want to buy a product you can put out, it's called Sluggo, S-L-U-G-G-O. And then there's a form called Sluggo Plus, which gets pill bugs as well. It's an iron phosphate bait. It is totally safe for people and pets. Stay away from these things that are like snail bait and bug getta, things like that. They use them called metaldehyde, which is deadly poisonous to dogs and other creatures. But the Sluggo Plus is a very natural product which uh, will kill the snails attract and kill the snails very effectively the other old-fashioned way to do it is just to put out uh you know a shallow dish uh with stale beer in it and the snails will crawl in and drown and die by the hundreds uh they're not going after the alcohol they're going after the yeast that's in there but uh uh, you can make your own snail trap, and believe me, you'll be amazed at how many snails you catch. I can't do it because uh, I have two black labs for companions, and they think beer is God's gift to dogs as well as to mankind. Well, sure. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, just a little stale beer in a uh, little, you know, aluminum foil dish or loaf pan or something like that. Uh, 
uh, is a very effective. Yeah, tuna cans, fine, yeah. although you probably want to go to something a little bigger. They used to manufacture, something came out of England, they called a slug pub, which was like a little plastic dish, and then it had like a little basket in it and a little umbrella over the top. And it was kind of a neat deal because uh, you could lift it up and all the dead snails would be in this little basket, and you just go empty them into the compost pile and put it back in there. But I uh, haven't seen slug pubs around for, you know, maybe 10 years or so, but you can create your own. And uh, that's a natural, inexpensive uh, way to, uh, you know, to go after them, and it works very, very effectively, snails and slugs both. Awesome, awesome. I need to talk my wife and let me buy some beer. <laughs> Right. Yeah, just tell her. Yeah, that, that's why I needed a a whole case of that. But uh, uh, they're not too discriminating. Get a six pack of the cheap stuff, and uh, and and then just kind of fudge a little bit on the reasons for buying some of the good stuff. It go. was it was Ben Franklin, and how what two hundred years ago Ben Franklin lived, and one of his comments uh, it was that uh, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. So uh, <laughs> you can find yeah. that on little signs and things like that. So not a bad thing to have around the house to remind uh, the, the powers that be, so to speak. <laughs> I, I hey. do come across uh, a lot of uh, native plants here locally near Seguin mm-hmm. in New Braunfels, and, uh, like frog fruit. That is yeah. a wonderful ground cover. Oh, yeah. It's just yeah. nails. Yeah, same way my, with my – uh... Mexican... Go ahead. Go ahead. My Mexican feather grass is just fantastic, too. I just can't stop that from reproducing. Yeah. Yeah, frog fruit, uh, and, and it's kind of like the uh, the little yellow-flowered plant that some people call straggler daisy if you don't like it, and you call it horse herb if you do like it. But it's just it's just a mindset. You know, they're... Some of the commercial fertilizer people, especially, they have convinced a lot of people that if you if you don't grow acres and acres of Bermuda and St. Augustine and you know four selected plants, then you're a failure. But there, it's just a lot of it is just acceptance that it is a pretty and attractive landscape plant. And frog fruit's one of those ones that's right up there. We have a a fairly good source on frog fruit, but um, yeah, it's it still doesn't move nearly as fast as dwarf monkey grass and Asiatic jasmine, but uh, we're gradually making inroads. So you keep up yes, your sir. good work, and uh, we'll you look forward to visiting you, James. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone line. It's going to be Mary and Lee and James and Sandra. Mary is next. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have several questions. Hopefully I can make them quick. Okay. Um, I bought some bags of Nature's Creations raised bed soil. Uh, uh-huh. It's been a while back now, I, a few weeks, and used it in a bed that I was um, doing for flowers. Okay. And when I was putting it out, it was very hot, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of wood in it. Right. And my flowers are not doing real good. What can I do for them? Increase your fertilizing. Um, I've okay. fussed at them a little bit because I think they need, uh, they simply sell so much of it. I don't think that the compost is quite as far broken down as it should be, and that means it's stealing some of the nutrient out of the soil. Just uh, just double up on your fertilizer. It will get beyond that pretty quickly, and long-term, I think it'll be some of the best uh, material you've used. Okay. Um, the next thing is zucchini. I've got a big zucchini plant, like very healthy, um, and 
it got one zucchini on it that was looking really good. And then I noticed when I picked it, it had little dark spots on it. Uh-huh. And the leaf, the new leaves coming out on the plant are mosaic. Looking. Okay. You probably have most squash is susceptible to a virus, and you can control that with nothing more than hydrogen peroxide. Dilute it about two parts water to one part hydrogen peroxide. Spray the foliage with it. This is not anything that's uh, harmful to people or pets or anything else, but it's what they call a mosaic virus, and it just alters the color pattern, the pigment pattern in the leaves, and in the case of squash, actually in the squash itself. Self, but nothing to panic over, and like I say, a little hydrogen peroxide will take care of it. My biggest problem I'm seeing of squash right now is just I don't know where the bees are this year. We're really short on pollinators, and squash is one of those things that has to be pollinated well to get good production. But uh, what you're talking about is a little mosaic virus, and hydrogen peroxide should take care of it totally. Okay, what about the – I'm seeing kind of a similar thing on my yellow squash and my zucchini. The zucchini on that plant have started, some of them, not all of them, but some of them, they've started um, turning kind of yellow at the end, mm-hmm. the blossom end, right, and drying up. And my yellow squash, some of those are, some do, some are and some aren't, but it's like they fold in on themselves. Right. You know, like and they're here's- losing all the moisture inside. Here's, here's what happens. Um, when that squash starts to develop, you have to have one pollen grain. The, the female flower, the reproductive part is called the pistil. And, uh, the top of the pistil is called the stigmatic surface. The pollen gets deposited on there. It grows down through and all the way down to the little squash. And you have to have one grain of pollen on the stigmatic surface for every seed that is going to be in that squash or that cucumber or that melon. And where we don't get good pollination, there's a little chemical sensor in the plant that says, uh, hey, we're not going to make much seed because we're not getting properly fertilized, so to speak. And so we're not going to go to the effort. This is the plant talking. We're not going to go to the effort of making a squash because our purpose is to make seed. We don't care whether, you know, we're not growing it to feed you. We're growing it to make seed. So what you're looking at is simply a matter of what we call incomplete pollination. Um, do everything you can to encourage all bees, not just honeybees, but mason bees or native bees are probably even more effective as pollinators. You can create a little mason bee house, so to speak, and uh, um, or you can actually buy them at almost any nature store. And you can always get out there with a little artist paintbrush and dust around down inside the male flowers and dust around inside the female flowers. You can do the job of the honeybee. The actual individual pollen grains are practically microscopic, but uh, you can turn that squash around in a big hurry. Okay. Now, this is going to seem like a stupid question, but how do I tell no the such. difference between the, the male blossom and the female blossom? Okay, the the male blossom is going to have a lot of fuzzy yellow material down in the center of the flower. And if you okay. look at the base of the male flower, there's nothing but a stem. If you look at the base of a female flower, you will see what looks like a little miniature squash or a little miniature cucumber or a little miniature melon. These plants yeah, are all okay. closely related. But you'll actually see like a little miniature form of what you're hoping will begin to grow uh, behind the the base of the female flower. Okay. Um, another squash question here at my house. Um, 
in one of my new beds. The squash started out looking pretty good, and they're still small, mm-hmm. but um, the plants. Yeah. The ants are getting at some of them, and I guess it's the ants that are eating them because that's what's all over them. Well, it may be ants and more. Down that dry molasses, but it doesn't yeah. seem to be making much headway yet. The uh, the principal culprit on squash is usually pill bugs. Um, ants, mm-hmm. ants. If ants are going in there, ants are mainly looking for an excrement left behind by everything from you know aphids to scale to other creatures. Ants, in and of themselves, are a nuisance. And if you want to spray a little spinneret sat around, um, it's pretty hard on the ants, but it's also pretty hard on the bees. So I would do that as a last resort. But uh, okay. you may want to put out some bait for pill bugs because they're okay. the ones that uh, eat on the leaves, on the flowers. And there's also a little green thing looks like a, a chartreuse-colored aphid with black or chartreuse-colored uh, ladybug with black spots. That's actually a bean beetle and they love to eat on the squash too, but uh, put out a little bit of uh, a Sluggo Plus or one of your pill bug baits, and you'll start getting ahead of them slowly. Okay. Uh, last question. We have a lady who gave us a lot of eggshells uh-huh. um, washed out. She had made them for Casparonas for the school, and then the school wasn't in, so uh-huh. um, she gave them to us. So we crush them up, and then... Just spread them around the tomatoes, or we need to work it down in? (laughs) I hate to tell you, it's basically a waste of time. Um, uh, Up north, it's a great thing to do because eggshells are almost pure calcium. We are not short on calcium because that's what limestone is, and we typically have plenty of limestone in our soil. Uh, It doesn't hurt anything, but, you know, you go up where you have a more acidic soil, you work your eggshells in, and you go back a few weeks later, and there's no sign of them. Here you work your eggshells in, and you go back 10 years later, you're still going to find pieces of eggshells. So put them in the compost pile, you know, do whatever you like with them, but um, you're not going to gain a lot with eggshells uh still i prefer to recycle uh, reuse uh you know uh compost everything possible we're putting way too much stuff into our landfills so uh thank your neighbor kindly and uh do whatever you like because you really don't need them in your garden okay one last quick question um i had called back a couple of weeks ago about the molasses that was left in our molasses buckets and right. you know we got uh-huh. We have it now because it's dissolved in, in, in a bucket, but is it okay to just keep skimming off the the mold that is growing on the top and, sure, and sure. diluting it with water and using it? Yeah, it's uh, what you're what you're getting, what you're the benefit from that is going to be all the sugar that's in there, which is great for your microbes, especially beneficial bacteria. But, yeah, just keep on doing Eventually, you know, it's going to get more and more dilute, and you'll want to get some uh, good fresh molasses. But in the meantime, yeah, you're just gradually leaching more and more out of it, and uh, you can use it to water things in with or, you know, where spray it, whatever, wherever you like using okay. it. It's going to really improve the uh, the microbial life in the soil, which is what gardening's all about. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Mary. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Lee. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? Uh, it's just a beautiful day out there. It's going to be uh, an incredible weekend, I think. I think you're right. I got, like everybody, I got a couple of questions for you, maybe three. Uh, okay. 
one, you, you stole part of my thunder with the squash. Yes, sir. Uh, but I still have some squash thunder. Uh, number one, I've got almost all male uh, flowers instead of female. I'll have like one female and about 10 or 15 male that's that's normal, and as the temperatures, the night temperatures go up, you'll start getting a whole lot more female flowers. Okay, and I've been, what few females I have, I've been uh, fertilizer or whatever you want to call it, taking care of them, but I've been mm-hmm. taking that stem out of the male and just rubbing it around. Is that just as good as, as if, doing the if- artist brush? As the if the pollen is ripe, if the pollen is dusty, if it's still kind of hard and yellow, uh, that's mm-hmm. not mature yet. When you rub it around on there, you should see a yellow residue left behind, where you've actually left the tiny little pollen grains all over it. Uh, so long as the and that structure is called the pollinia, um, as long as those are mature, then you can certainly do it that way. That's fine. Great. One more question about squash, and I don't have the problem yet, but whenever I need to uh, have, whenever I get, uh, what is it, the squash borers? Uh-huh. Uh, Vine borers, yeah. Res- you have a recipe for the spinosad and water in a needle, but I don't... No, it's it's BT. Really it's BT, BT, Bacillus syringiensis, not spinosad. Uh, it's BT... Okay. And uh, I make it pretty concentrated. I'll put like uh, maybe an ounce of BT in a cup of water and then inject that into the stem. And that's given me total control. Now, Harry Garrett and I have been talking about the fact that some people are telling us that human hair seems to be repellent to the moth that lays the egg for the vine borer. And believe me, now the barbershops and beauty salons are opening up. <laughs> you could probably go to your barber and uh, collect, you know, a good little bag of hair. Uh, hair is also high in protein. It's actually a pretty good fertilizer. Might try dusting a little bit of that around. It's uh, You're never going to stick yourself with uh, hair like you can accidentally do with a needle. So uh, I think it's worth right. experimenting with. We'll wait and see how effective it is. But uh, I, I have done the injection into the stem uh, and that has, in my garden, has totally stopped the vine borers. Right. Well, I had heard that the uh, hair was good protein and good for the garden. Yeah. So I took a bunch of dog hair that I vacuumed up in the house, and I put it out there and turned it into the soil. And six months later, it has not dissolved. Uh, it takes a while. Yeah, pro- proteins are slow to break down. Yeah, but supposedly human hair is better against the vine borer. So uh, give that a try, and hey, if it if it does anything to repel the vine borers, it's worth the effort. Right. And I appreciate it, Lee. All right, in order, uh, James, Sandra, Mike, and Betty, and James is first. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Oh, you know, I got 1.2 inches of rain, so you probably got three and a half, but uh, my day's off to a great start. How'd you come through the storm? Well, it only rained for about 30 minutes, but it was a monsoon rain. I'm headed out to the uh, rain gauge just to see what's going on. Well, this this has been the best week we've had in the hill country for rain in about a year now, so... uh, it's uh it's a good thing you know and the plants are sure smiling out there of course 
it's going to make that grass grow, and we're going to spend a little bit more time with the mowers. But nah, that's just exercise, unless you got an old mower that doesn't work, or unless you have a huge area. But uh, what's on your mind this morning? Uh, oh, just uh, let me tell you, um, we got an inch and a half last night. Yeah, that's a good rain. Uh, it's another squash question. Uh, the blossom end rod on the yellow squash is, is uh, not really blossom end rot. That's that's uh, lack of pollination. Yeah, it looks like blossom end rot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all the all the people that uh, got the uh, the squash that I grew for transplants are having problems with it, and they're blaming it on the uh, the uh, blossom end rot. But I no. I didn't think uh, that's what it was. No, it's totally different, and uh, you know it's 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 different in squash. That whole the blossom end will just turn brown and just start rotting. In cucumbers, it's funny; it works differently. It's like the cucumber will start to develop normally, and then instead of being an inch and a half in diameter, it just shrivels up to this little rat tail. But it just it's only going to develop as far as the seeds got fertilized, so to speak, through proper pollination, and that's what that soft brown end is on the yellow squash. We've just got to, we've got to support the bees better. We've got to put out more mason bee attractors, and sometimes we've got to get out there and do their job for them because uh, I don't know about your, around your place, but, man, honeybees are scarce around my ranch this uh, spring, and it's certainly not because pesticides because I don't use much of any of that, but... Uh, there's a real shortage of bees out there this spring. I've got a few honeybees, but uh, they're. But have, uh, I think I'm going to do like the rest of your gardeners are doing and start building the uh, the native uh, bee yeah. uh, tracting abodes or whatever you call them. <laughs> That's a good term to use. That's exactly what you're doing. Do you, do you keep bees? Do you have hives? I used to, but. Uh, when my nephew was lived closer, I could get uh, some manpower to when it yeah. came time to do the work. Yeah. I'm just it's just too heavy and hot, and I I'm just one little old man, um, <laughs> and I can't get any of the young folks interested in it. So. Well, and there's just not enough hours in the day to do everything we want to. But uh, yeah, it's it's not blossom and rot, and it's not it's not soil based. It's just strictly lack of pollination is all it is, James. Okay, that my little uh, my little gardeners are going to be happy to hear that. Um, we got started early this year on uh, putting out the come and get it ant bait. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, it really worked out well. I think I put out two pounds so far. Well, not quite two pounds, and uh, the the ant problem is is not as bad as it's been. It's packed there. I'm having a hard time finding them. Well, and that's a good thing, especially after these rains. I mean, uh, you've had more rain than lots of us have, and after that first rain, man, the ha- the little mounds just came up everywhere. But that come and get it's an effective product, so long as it hadn't been sitting out in the heat. And uh, if it stays in the heat too long, that attractant in it goes rancid, and the ants don't pick it up well. But if you're keeping it cool as you should and dealing with fresh material it's very effective in uh at least in my experience in keeping the fire ants under control and as we've talked i don't do it in my pastures because out there i figure they kill the ticks and some other bad things but in my garden i have no use for fire ants yeah i've got a 50 foot row of uh serranos and jalapenos and they're particularly 
and chili tapines and all well, that. And, and you, you don't grow okra, but those are the two things fire ants love most are okra and pepper. So uh, you're doing it right as always. Okay, well, uh, are you going to ask uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Garrett uh, Garrett about uh, the uh, how to keep the molasses from going? I've got it on my list right here. It's uh, it's it's on my list right here in the Ask Howard down at the bottom. I I've just got one little yellow page in front of me that I've got the commercials listed, the callers listed, and down to things to ask Howard. And it's on my list. Man, if I was half as organized as you, I'd be in good shape. You know that? Well, I don't know about that, but uh, it's one thing I guess I do a a fair job at keeping up with. So uh, you get out and make your world better, and we'll talk again soon. Have fun, man. Bye. (laughs) Thank you, James. (laughs) Goodbye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Well, they put so many irrelevant commercials in there that I've only got a few seconds here before news. As soon as we come back, it'll be Sandra and Mike and Betty. Uh, just a few seconds here to remind you lots of things to do out there today. It's a perfect time to put out beneficial nematodes. If you're fighting fire ants, if you're fighting fleas, if you've been seeing June bugs around, you know the grub worms are getting started. This is just the absolute perfect day because I think everybody got at least some rain out of it. And uh, live beneficial nematodes, uh, well, they move in a film of water. So perfect day to put them out. Perfect day to fertilize if you haven't already done so. Now those chemicals, those synthetic fertilizers, don't ever put them on wet grass. You'll burn the heck out of things. But your good organic products, like we talk about, you put them on wet or dry. And if you haven't done it in the past two, three months, let me tell you what, your landscape, your garden is hungry, and uh, they sure could use a little dose of fertilizer. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. Ah, but don't dial right this second because all lines are taken. It's going to be Sandra and Betty. I'm sorry, Sandra and Mike and Betty and Trudy. Sandra's up first. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning, Bob. I have a well, couple of questions and a couple of recommendations. I look forward to both. <laughs> okay. Um, I sent you an email, and I know you don't do emails well. Uh, I just don't get around to them as often as I should. <laughs> but uh, well, I will look forward was, to you. It was an alert about a, uh, a program we have at Texas State University in the Department of Agriculture. Right, right. Um, uh-huh. it's, it's called Biome Mimicry. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's about, you know, returning soil to a healthy, normal state, you know, farming in nature's image. Right. And, uh, anyway, it was a nice it was a nice feature that we had at the university. You know, I saw that that had come in, and I just I haven't spent five minutes in front of the computer in about four days. It's we're very blessed. We have been so just incredibly busy, and uh, just and that's a good thing. So many people are spending time outside in the yards and gardens, and uh, I've got it saved, and I definitely will read it, Sandra, but I appreciate it, but I, I apologize for not having gotten to it yet, but uh, I will. And uh, what you guys do up there is just absolutely amazing, you especially, but your whole program up there, and teaching teachers and teaching kids and helping people help others and, uh, you know, building the soil, Building life in the soil is what it's all about. So I, I look forward to that uh, article. You know, we also have a composting program, and so you can get compost 
up there uh, going through the ag department with uh, Dr. Tina Cade. Uh-huh. And if and uh, you know if you request it 24 hours ahead, they'll brew compost tea. Oh wow, that's great. Yeah. So there's lots of um, lots of good stuff, you know. They're trying to do with the ag department. I'm not in that department, of course. I'm in the biology department, but I <laughs> right. work a lot with them. <laughs> well, then of course okay. we're talking about Southwest Texas State up in San Marcos, and uh, you know, just doing the job right. And I have my hats off to you for doing so many things so well. So I hope I hope our listeners out there and our our people there are always asking me, you know, where can I go? to get some good horticulture and all, and uh, you guys are sure at the top of my list. Well, we do a lot of hands-on um, throughout our programs. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, and then I had um, I had a couple of recommendations. Um, of course, you know, Malcolm Beck tutored me, and he always had those lessons in nature. So, exactly. Of course, of course, I've been home a lot since they closed the university, and we're having to do those awful online stuff. Which does, does not work well, especially with performance assessment. But that's, right. that's another conversation. Uh, but what has happened is I I have a little neighbor girl. It's in the second grade, who um, I started kind of showing her, you know, things that are happening in nature as it you know goes along through the spring, and and so she's invited two other little girls. So I've got a second grade, a third grade, and a fourth grade team of little girls that come down every day for a nature walk. Oh, that's and fun. It is fun and is excuse me, is really um it, it's interesting to watch how they learn because this is a way we should and I'm talking to people, you know, who are not working right now but who love nature as they do with gardening and et cetera, farming. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um the little girls um are, you know, they do, they're so interested in everything. So I, I'll give you a couple examples. So I was out there, and I try to walk ahead at a time. You know, I've got about an acre and a half, and a uh-huh. half acre I don't do anything with. And so I'll take little nature walks myself and see, you know, what's new, you know, what can I show them. You know, we're looking at, at uh, antelope horns for monarch eggs, et cetera. And so, uh, so I was showing them some uh, uh, sensitive briar. And mm-hmm. uh, showing and showing them, you know, how the leaves will fold up. I didn't go into the hydrology component of it. You know, just keep, keep it simple. <laughs> you and, need need and, to get them a little a little more advanced in schooling before you take on the technical aspects. That's right. But anyway, so we come up, and of course we're doing this, the, you know, the distancing, the social distancing, and I've mm-hmm. got on my mask because my husband particularly is is uh, susceptible. Right. So um, we, you know, I have a big back deck. It's about twenty by thirty feet back deck with a pergola and, you know, shade trees. And um, so they we come up on the back deck, and so they ask me, do you have any books? <laughs> that's, like asking the, that's like asking if the Pope is Catholic. So, mm-hmm. yes, I do. I've got, you know, I've got uh, uh, Malcolm's books on the insects, and I've got uh, the tree books by, uh, uh, Howard. what's his name? Howard, Howard yeah. Garrett, and, yeah. Yeah, and I've got those colored pages for the wildflower books by the lady's name I can't pronounce, Ajilavishi. Ajilask, yeah, Gayata Ajilask, yep. Yeah, and um, anyway, and so 
you know, I'm not telling them to do anything. And I yeah. look up out there, and they've got those books open, and they're looking at the pictures, and they're reading mm-hmm. the narrative, you know, on all of that. And that's just a, such a natural way for them to learn to go from those concrete experiences to what we call the pictorial abstract. Uh-huh. And, um, and and your listeners can do that with the little neighborhood children. And I I would highly you know recommend that they think about doing that because kids learn so much that way. Yeah. Well. And uh, go ahead. You are so right. And uh, do you have any mason bee uh, attractors out there? That's something would be fun to hang in some of your trees, and that'd also be a great lesson right now while our honeybees seem to be so threatened. And uh, such a fun thing. They're as as Malcolm always called them, plug bees. But uh, if you don't have those for one of your lessons in nature, I'd sure get some of those out in the near future. Well, I have a neighbor next door who does all organic, and he's got every fruit tree and everything that you can think of. So I can take a little nature walk over there, too. Very good. um, um, So those little little, uh, bee houses that you can buy, you know, with the alcoves in them, they're going to attract. Oh, yeah. Or you can simply... You can simply take a piece of cedar, either native cedar or western red cedar, which is what you buy at the lumber yard. Drill a bunch of holes. Just, uh, I mean, put a little ring bolt in the top so you hang it in a shady spot and under a tree. And drill a bunch of holes from three-eighths of an inch to five-eighths of an inch in diameter. And believe me, the, the cedar bees, the mason bees, they'd rather not have to hollow that wood out themselves. And... Uh, you'll find they'll move in fairly quickly and they'll lay an egg and then put a little section across and lay another egg. And they say that the mason bees, our native bees, are about, you know, 20 times more effective than honeybees at pollinating. And I think it's something we all need to have more of in our landscape since for, and we won't get into all the the possible reasons and things with the colony collapse disorder, but we all need to be helping out our native bees just to get more pollinators into the garden. And that would be a great thing to teach your, your young students. Well, wild birds has those also. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of, yeah. yeah, most all the nature stores do. Yeah, but if yeah, anybody's on a yeah. budget, it's it's pretty. Anybody's on a budget and has a drill, um, it's a very low cost project as well. The other thing I wanted to tell you was kind of interesting because you know I've been busy grading projects and all, and so they'll come to the door, and I'll tell them I'm sorry I can't you know I can't do that today, and they'll say well can we go in your backyard? So mm-hmm. I okay you know I can't come out to play but you can play in my backyard, <laughs> and the, the next thing I know. Uh, they are on the back deck on the table, and they've got all of these animal skeletons or parts uh-huh. of, right? And that they found in you know in my back half acre, and they're out there sorting those. And it is so cute to see these little girls. I mean, they're just doing this on their own. And then they say, "Do you have any Ziploc?" So I give them Ziploc, <laughs> and, and they're 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 divvying up their treasures. I mean, it is just so fun to watch. And so wow. I've got a you know a bunch of lessons in mind that I you know I see. Um, as an as know. an educator, you're doing it right at lots of different levels, Sandra, and we all appreciate what you're doing and appreciate you sharing with us. So get out and enjoy this beautiful day and keep us posted on what the kiddos are finding. And thank you. You know, I, as, I love listening to your programs. <laughs> you're mighty kind, and I sure do appreciate it. And uh, Chris, I guess we better keep moving here. Let's see what Mike is up to this morning. Good morning, Mike. Hello, Mr. Bob. Howdy. 
Uh, got a couple questions uh, concerning the oatmeal, uh, excuse me, cornmeal treatment for uh, oak wilt. Yes, sir. Uh, I know you talked about it last week, and I didn't remember. I didn't write any of it down, and I was talking to my father-in-law, and they have an oak wilt problem up there in Tarpley area, and I was yep. going to you know, pass it on to him on what to do. He's got some trees with oak wilt and some that doesn't, but he wants to try to you know beat the punch. Well, it's it's a great thing to do, and, you know, years ago, we discovered that cornmeal would work against oak wilt, didn't really understand fully how, and I started out telling people about getting cornmeal and just spreading dry cornmeal out around under the drip line of the trees, following it up a little bit of compost or a little bit of manure if you were able to, and I've got places where, you know, have seen trees that, even ones that had fairly bad oak wilt have recovered. Since that time, uh, there's been a lot of research done, actually mostly in England, because it seems our local folks would rather recommend a very expensive chemical. But um, what we are finding is that the trichoderma fungus, which grows on the cornmeal, stimulates something that is called either systemic-induced resistance or systemic-acquired resistance in plants, not just trees, but plants of all sorts against a wide range of fungal problems, including oak wilt, which is what we call a vascular fungus. And what the arborists have discovered, that you can accomplish the same results, whether it's treating existing oak wilt or preventing future oak wilt, using a lot less cornmeal by simply soaking it in water and then pouring that water around the tree, uh, not way out around the drip line, but up within 10 feet of the trunk of the tree. And the standard procedure is to put one to two cups of uh, cornmeal, whole ground cornmeal, uh, and just the old cheapest stuff you can find at the feed store works fine because the cornmeal's not the magic. It's trichoderma that grows on the cornmeal. But put one to two cups of whole ground cornmeal in a five-gallon bucket of water, let it stand overnight to activate the fungus, and then simply pour that liquid. You don't have to strain it or anything else, but simply pour that out up to 10 feet away from the trunk of the tree. Now, an oak tree that's, say, six, seven inches in diameter, one five-gallon bucket's probably enough, and then proportionately more as a tree trunk gets bigger and bigger in diameter. If you've got a big old heritage tree, let's say, that has a 24-inch trunk, I'd probably put four or five five-gallon buckets of the, uh, we just call it corn water tea, around, and it works through creating this systemic-induced uh, resistance. It works at both preventing and if the disease isn't too progressed at actually curing the oak wilt. And it's been, uh, it's in the literature now. Lots of research been done, especially in England. I think some in Germany now, uh, that very much scientifically document the process by which it works. So in a nutshell, so to speak, or in, in a cornmeal, that's, uh, you know, that, that's what it amounts to. It's either using dry or, like I say, use a lot less cornmeal if you create that liquid corn water tea. Um, if you were doing it curatively, I would repeat it about uh, quarterly. I'd repeat it about every three months or so. If you're trying to prevent it, I think doing maybe twice a year uh, would work very well. Does that generally that cover the topic for you? Uh, can you, like I said, does it, do you start it right now? It doesn't matter. Yeah, you do it any time of year. Uh, 
it's kind of like people ask me when the best time to plant a tree was, or tree is. I tell them uh, a year ago, but second best time is today. So, <laughs> yeah, it would have been good to get it started, but uh, it's as has achieved wide success, and uh, I can point to some trees that you know. A lot of uh, so-called experts had given up on and said, you might as well cut that tree down, and today they're back to be an absolutely beautiful tree. So uh um doesn't mean that trees don't get to a point, because uh, vascular fungus, it just it plugs up the little vessels in the tree that conduct the water, and that's how oak wilt kills a tree. And, um, you know, things like red oaks, it kills very quickly, so you're almost going to have to prevent in red oaks. But live oaks, it's a slow degenerative disease, and uh, you can reverse it if it hadn't gotten too far along, and you can certainly prevent it. Very good. Uh, one other quick question about the uh, vinegar-orange oil mix. Right. I've done it a couple of times around the house, probably within the past two or three months. Is it? And it's not really... You know, the clover and stuff like that, yes, it hits it. But the other stuff that I'm spraying, it's I'm not seeing anything. Has it just been too cool at night? Is it just not growing? Well, it doesn't work real well against woody things. Against uh, more tender things, be it beggar's lice or henbit or dandelions or, you know, the winter grasses, things like that. You know, if you're using it against uh, woodier things, uh, it will burn the foliage back, but it takes a lot longer and takes a lot more applications. It's uh, um, what I do, let's say poison ivy, for instance, or, uh, you know, uh, heaven forbid you're fighting the damn little hackberry trees that I fight all the time. Cut them back to ground level and spray that new foliage as it comes out. Two or three sprayings, if you can keep it from getting up and you know, making a, storing a lot more energy in the plants, you will eventually kill it. But I'll be the first to admit that it is much more effective against tender weeds than it is against real tough woody stuff. Well, I'm trying to spray, you know, in the flower bed area where some of my carpet grass is, is going into, and I'm trying to spray that area, you know, those, those runners, and yeah. really hadn't done anything to those. No, and that's that's good in that we can spray without damaging the grass. We can kill some things. Nice thing about carpet grass for St. Augustine, those runners are right up on the surface. And with a push-pull hoe or with a little bit of just manual effort, you can get rid of that. The stuff I hate is the Bermuda grass with the underground runners, and it's tough. I end up just trying to smother it out with cardboard or things like that, but... Uh, I you're, you're not going to have a lot of success against your perennial grasses with it. Um, yeah, I'm trying, also trying to spray the uh, the little oak parts that come out of around the base of a tree. Right, and those are actually coming. A bunch of them. Yeah, and those are actually coming off the roots of the tree. So um, you know you wouldn't want to be too effective on those because you'd be killing the roots of your oak tree. But yeah. uh, what I always tell people on all little oak sprouts is the tree is stressed one reason or another. Maybe drought stressed, maybe buried too deeply. If you have a large number of root sprouts, then something is stressing is stressing that tree. And you need to try to figure out what that is and address it. Now, sometimes there's nothing can be done. I had a, an oak tree, have an oak tree, probably, oh, 14, 18 inches in diameter that just snapped off and fell over about five feet above ground level. This has been about five or six years ago, and the top of the tree is still alive. But the fact that 80% of that tree, 
you know, just, just in effect broken half, and it apparently has enough of the vascular tissue still intact um, that it's still green, still growing, going like mad. But, man, you talk about a forest of root sprouts. Anything comes along that stresses a tree is going to increase the root sprout. So I'd check and be sure that root flare is exposed. I'd be looking to... Uh, you know, maybe some thorough deep watering because at least for me, this is first decent rain, rainy period I've had in over a year. So look at what could be causing you to have more of the root sprouts. And then I go after the root sprouts with a grub and hoe, try to cut them off below ground level. Or I was visiting with my arborist friend, David Vaughn, in an area that I couldn't. And I said, hey, if I just cover them up an inch or two deep with compost or leaves or things like that, is that going to make sure I don't have oak wilt getting in there? And he said, oh, absolutely. So other ways to deal with the uh, root sprouts on the oak trees, but your vinegar orange oil is not going to do much there. All right. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Always good to talk to you. I appreciate the call, Mike, and I thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, back to the phone lines. It is Betty, Trudy, Diane, and Gary. Betty is up first. Good morning. Hi, Betty. I'm uh, not hearing anything on uh, the other end of Betty's line. Are you there, Betty? Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, good morning. Good morning. I have a Belinda's dream uh, that's about 10, 12 years old. Uh-huh. I, need to, I need to transplant it. It's got failure to thrive right now. Okay. And I lose, lose leaves and loses leaves, and I'm in Pipe Creek, so, you know, I'm on a shelf somewhere. Right, right. And I, I did build it up, build up the soil, but I, I think it's gotten to the point where it's not getting nutrients or something. How mm-hmm. and when do I transplant this? Okay, you're probably not going to want to hear this, but you're going to be better off to go to a nursery and buy a new plant. And here's the reason why. Um, if you were in an area with deep soil, the if you were to dig a root ball, you know, 18 inches wide, you would get a pretty good percentage of that uh, Belinda Stream Rose's root system, and it would transplant pretty easily. In Pipe Creek, your poor rose has had to spread those roots 10 times as wide, and if you dug the same size root ball, you'd probably get a tenth as many roots. And unless, you know, you could dig a 1,000-pound root ball that's four feet wide, your chances of success on a big, mature rose bush like that are going to be very, very low. If you want to try it, Midwinter is the best time. You want it to be as cool as possible, and you're going to have to cut it back very severely. But, um, again, it's kind of like mountain laurels. You know, the people that dig and move mountain laurels, they don't come up and dig them in our part of the hill country because the soil is so shallow and the roots are so widespread. They're going to go over around Castorville or somewhere with much deeper soil because the same size root ball gets a much higher percentage of the plant's roots and the transplant success is uh, much, much better. So uh, it's not that you don't lack skill. It's not that you don't know what you're doing. But on shallow soils, that rose's roots are going to be so spread out that you're just not going to be able to get enough of them to, uh, you know, to have a good chance of transplanting it. Now, I would actually suggest if you want to try, and uh, I would, I would wait until next winter to do this, but literally, rather than try to dig it, I most, almost would try to pull it up, just see how much of the root system you can get. 
but in any event, you're going to spend five hundred dollars trying to trying to save a twenty dollar rose bush. So, uh, and I've got I've got a Belinda's dream the same way. It's just the spot where it is has just gotten too shady. But rather than try to transplant it, it's just going to be a whole lot better. Since Belinda's dream, excellent excellent rose by the way, uh, is pretty widely available, and it's just going to save you a lot of a lot of trouble and uh, probably a lot of disappointment. Just go get a new rose. Okay, well, that's what I was afraid of. In the meantime, uh, it has fewer leaves every year. It gets fewer and fewer. Do I just go ahead and cut it down, or can I? If I've tried if I were you, yeah, I would double up on the fertilizer, and I'd put three, four inches of mulch over the surface of the soil. Um, its roots are just getting spread wider and wider into what is not the best soil in the world, as you well know. But a, th- a thick mulch is going to keep the soil cooler. It's going to gradually add some more nutrients. I'd be I'd be feeding probably once a month or so, and oh, wow. um, okay. yeah, I, I you know I think you can bring that rose back, but I'd certainly get another one, have it in an area that's a little bit more favorable as well. Okay. Well, I appreciate your information. Well, I just have to give you the honest truth. (laughs) Been there, done that. So uh, you get out and enjoy a beautiful weekend. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, next up is Trudy. Good morning, Trudy. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I'm calling for my cousin who lives in Johnson City. Okay. He wants to know how do you kill prickly pear cactus. Not digging up. He said, I'm too old for that. But okay. pour something on it. Doesn't work. It doesn't. There's nothing you can pour short of uh, nuclear toxic waste. But <laughs> here's the nice. Here's the nice thing about prickly pear. It doesn't sprout back from the roots. Um, and the thing to do, and you know, even if you're not uh, in a position that you're real physically strong, but if you have a tractor with a loader on the front end of it, or if you have a bobcat, or if you have a friend that has, I guess I should call him skid steer rather than give a brand name, but if you have a skid steer, if you can break the prickly pear loose from the ground, if you can just shave it off at ground level, it does not sprout back from the roots, and you simply push all of those pads into a pile you coat it with molasses mix your molasses pretty strong maybe a quart of molasses and a gallon of water and just pour that over the cactus pile and now it doesn't work on live cactus it'll just make live cactus grow better but once you break it free from the soil when you put the molasses on it will rot away totally and will not sprout will not regrow from the roots so if he is able to sit in the <laughs> sit in the seat with a seat belt on on a bobcat or other skid steer you simply you simply shave it off at ground level put it in a pile hit it with molasses and you're done with it you don't have to dig it out you don't have to get the roots out it just as long as you get the stems as long as you get the pads pushed away uh, you're done with dealing with that prickly pear. Okay. Thank you so much. You are certainly welcome. Been there, okay. done that, and uh, as you know, I spent parts of uh, three summers in a wildlife management area where we dealt with lots of prickly pear, and we all became known as sticker pickers because <laughs> it's not pleasant, to, not pleasant to deal with. But uh, given that information, and it's it's not as hard to get rid of if you need to. Other people will simply take what they call a pear burner, which is a propane torch, 
burn the spines off of it and let their cattle or goats eat it. The problem is the livestock likes the taste of it so much, they'll start eating it with the spines on, and that causes some problems. But, uh, yeah. um, you know, that's, that's the other way to do it. I know lots of folks with goats that uh, think that goat's, uh, you know, tough creature, but uh, most of us, no, just break it free from the ground and rot it out with the molasses. Okay. Thanks again. You're welcome, Trudy. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. It's going to be Diane and Gary and Bill, and Diane is up first. Good morning, Diane. Hey, Bob. Good morning. How are you doing on this amazing day? Well, at least I'm sitting here with a couple of black labs for company. I've got the windows open, and I've got a beautiful view, so it's not as good as being out in the garden, but it's close. It's amazing. Okay, I have a few questions, so let me rattle them off real quick. Okay. The hair, the hair uh, to prevent the moth, the squash vine vores, do you just sprinkle it to the ground or pile it up at the base on the squash plant? I would pile it up on the base on the squash plant because, you know, those borers usually find their way. They usually bore into the first uh, four to six inches of stem, so I'm going to try piling it over that area. Okay. Does a squash plant only make as many female plants as it can support the fruit of? You know, that's a yeah, that's a good question. I I don't really know. Now I you know periodically have a few of the the squash abort. I don't know whether it's just because it's more than the plant can support or whether it's just one of those cases where it didn't get real good pollination. But I think part of that has to do with, you know, the care you give it. If you're getting adequate water, if you're getting adequate nutrient, uh, squash plant can make a lot of fruit. I'm just not getting very many female blossoms. I'm and I think lots that's the males. Yeah, I think when the nights warm up a little bit, you're going to have a lot more female blossoms. I think that that is largely temperature-induced. Okay, orange tree or tatsuma tangerine, whatever that thing is. I adopted one in the fall, planted okay. it. It had, it had been hostage in a container for decades, and <laughs> it was it was doing so good. And it had blossoms, it had leaves, and then we had that really late cold snap. Uh-huh. Now, I, I had put it in the ground. Now, it's like half of the tree is not coming back. Like, literally, there's no leaves. When you scratch the bark, is it still uh, is it still green? Well, I snapped some of the smaller ones, but I haven't scratched the, the bigger yep. ones. Scratch, scratch the bark, and if it's not coming out, cut them back, you know, because, again, it's all about concentrating that auxin to make the little, uh, in this case, uh, they may be adventitious buds rather than uh, lateral buds, but... Uh, it's in concentrating the oxen to get them to come out, and I'd also do a little bit of uh, just spraying on those green stems. I'd spray probably some garret juice, uh, probably a little liquid seaweed. We just want to get enough uh, of the proper material into that stem that we get those buds to sprout and grow. Otherwise, it seems like they just sit there and languish and go away. That's why we, you know, so many times just cut them back to where you've got green wood because that concentrates that makes the new leaf buds sprout and grow. Okay, one more. Microgreens versus sprouts, nutritional value. Is there a difference or is it just the same? 
Well, you probably, researcher that you are, um, can can study this as well as I can. Going by what I've been told, that on most sprouts, the most beneficial compounds are already in there. Uh, I don't know, uh, I read an article about this on broccoli in particular, because broccoli has some good anti-cancer and other things in it. But they said that the the little seedling starts off with its full complement of it, and it just gets more and more dilute through the plant. You have to eat more and more to get the same results. Now, that's not to say that there are not benefits of fiber, that there are not other phytonutrients that are going to be more present in a larger plant. So if I were a purist and I didn't like to eat very much, I'd concentrate on, concentrate on sprouts because it's much more nutrient-dense. But uh, microgreens, there there are a lot of good things in there. But as far as nutrient density, everything I read says that the sprouts are probably superior volume per volume. Okay, I'm sticking with my sprouts then. I think you're doing a good thing. If the soil, you know, a good healthy soil would bring in different, you know, it kind of like hydroponic versus... Yeah, and and there is a lot to be said for that, but again, part of it is what you're consuming for. And if you're looking for those specific healthful ingredients that, that are the things you, you get out of sprouts especially, uh, then the sprouts are the way to grow. But, um, you know, long-term overall diversity of nutrients, I don't think there's any doubt that a bigger plant, whether it's sprouts or whether it's, you know, a full salad, so to speak, uh, you're definitely going to get a greater diversity of nutrients and things, but those specific high-value nutrients, uh, um, you're, you're getting more concentrated in the sprouts than you're getting in anything else you grow. And, and if anybody is interested, broccoli sprouts have a, a chemical called sulforaphane that is really, really good for preventing um, cognitive-type issues. I'll, I'll try to remember that. <laughs> and I'll try to eat more broccoli sprouts to, uh, to help that. And uh, give us the name of the, uh, of the component once again. It's sulforaphane. There's a sulforaphane. Product Bro- There's a product called Brock Elite that, okay. that, that that's, they have measured the level of sulforaphane in the different varieties of broccoli and have found the highest one. So if you just want to, you know, swallow a pill, you can do that. Uh-huh. Or you can you can grow sprouts in a jar on your counter and it's super easy. And so have you learned a tremendous amount since you began your new career as a uh, as a health coach so to speak or is all this uh just total knowledge that you've stored up all over all the years or are you just getting smarter and smarter as you go from eating all this sulforaphane? <laughs> I wish it was the last one. You know, I learned I- uh, some of it has transferred over from before, and I've learned a lot of new sense. So it's a combination of the first two. Well, as always, thanks for sharing with us. Uh, you know, individually and collectively, we look forward to getting back to seminars one of these days. And you get out and enjoy this beautiful weekend. Thank you, Bob. You too. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this beautiful day. We'll finish up the hour with Gary and Bill. Gary is up first. Good morning, Gary. Hi, how are you doing, Bob? Fantastic. How about you today? Okay. 
Hey, uh, I had a question on trailing rosemary. Usually yes. blue-green in color. Uh, it's getting so, some branches that are getting rusty, uh, turning brown. And I, I didn't know if it was a fungus or virus. No. No, it's, it's a water issue. How old are these plants? Uh, they were put in five years ago. Okay, they, I find average life on rosemary is usually about 10 to 12 years, so they ought to, um, you know, they ought to, ought to still be doing well. If they've done well for five years, I suspect they got a little dry at some point, which may have made them a little more susceptible to spider mites, which can also contribute to that rusty brown look. I'd start spraying them with liquid seaweed. I get some liquid seaweed, do it about uh, two tablespoons per gallon. Spray them every couple of weeks. I'd probably hit them with a little bit of garret juice, uh, maybe even a little Super Thrive. And be sure, now most of us got a really good rain last night, but uh, be sure that they get very thoroughly, deeply watered uh, whenever that soil's dry, about a knuckle deep. So uh, you should be able to bring them back, but that's uh, that's definitely not a disease. That's some sort of environmental stress. Okay, good to know. Thanks. I was spraying them with neem oil and other stuff, and I, I, I couldn't get it. Yeah, and, and neem oil, actually, you have to be real careful with because uh, it can burn. Uh, because it is oil-based. It, it would be effective in controlling spider mites, but liquid seaweed's going to go a whole long way to, uh, a long way just to make the plants healthier. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd cut back on the neem. I don't think you really need to do that. I think okay. you'll do better with liquid seaweed and garret juice. Liquid seaweed. Okay. And the other thing is, uh, transplanting a sago palm. Mm-hmm. Are there any tricks to this? Wait till the hottest weather of the summer. When you cut the roots on a sago, uh, the roots die all the way back to the base of the plant, so there's no reason to try to get a giant root ball. won't help, but we do this July, August, and uh, dig it, replant it, and your chances of success are close to 100%. But wait till it really warms up. This is a job for the hottest part of the summer, unfortunately. Oh, okay, well, it's good to know. I've never guessed that. Um, it's uh, sagos and true palms. These, okay. um, these seeds uh, on uh, mountain laurel... Um, mm-hmm. Will they germinate on their own, or do you bury them, or, or how do you... Uh, they'll germinate on their own in about 10 years. If you want to speed it up, <laughs> scratch. You don't have to make a hole in it, but scratch that waxy surface with just a little triangular file or a piece of sandpaper. Soak them uh, for an hour or so. Uh, again, a little garret juice would be good, and then a higher percentage of them will sprout a whole lot more quickly. I appreciate the call. Let me uh, get Bill here in here before the end of the hour. Good morning, Bill. Hey, Bob. Hey. I'm having to replace a uh, a 12 to 15 foot uh, queen palm that froze two years ago. Yes, sir. I found some at a nursery, but they're in these gigantic tubs. Uh, Don't plant another queen palm, or it's just going to freeze and die like this one did because they get too big to protect. I've got five others that are are fine. Well, Uh, you're lucky. You're lucky because queen palm is not cold hardy here. And, you know, we may get by maybe 10 years before we have another cold winter, or it could be this winter. So uh, um, it's it, it just they're just not as cold-hardy, so it's just a gamble. Yeah, I'm pretty far south, so uh-huh. I'm down in Beaver. Uh, okay. The ones I've got, are, some of them are as much as 25 foot tall. Oh, yeah, they grow very quickly. They're one of our fastest-growing palm trees. When they're that mature, will they uh, resist the freeze, or I could lose those two? You could lose those two, unfortunately. 
Okay. You know, look at look at the Rio Grande Valley when we've had some of our severe freezes down there, and uh, probably ninety percent of the ones in the valley have died, along with you know a number of other things like one species of Washingtonia. They're beautiful palm, and like I say, they're fast growing, so they're you know cost effective, but. Man, if we, I just, I've lived here long enough to see too many cold winters, and maybe we do have global warming, maybe we're going to not have that severe cold, but that's, that's the disadvantage of queen palm. Other than that, they're a good, they're a good plant. Is there a problem taking that mature palm out of that tub and planting it in the ground? To just not if you do it, not if you do it during hot weather, because uh, they will regrow new roots very quickly, but I'd, uh, I'd do it in July or August, just like the transplanting of the sago. Just leave it, leave it in its tub until yeah, hot weather. Until it gets hot and then do it. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. But as I always tell you, you know not to call right this minute because we have a very special thing going on for the next uh, up till past the half hour, but we'll save the last few minutes of the show. And, of course, we do this for three hours again tomorrow morning. Right now, I have the pleasure of saying good morning to the dirt doctor. What's going on, Howard Garrett? Well, good morning. <clears throat> Sounds like y'all are getting better rain than we are here in Dallas. For a change, this, is, uh, this has been the wettest month that I have had in well over a year at my ranch and uh last night was no exception with the you know scare them to death news media they were telling us to prepare for high winds and hail and all that stuff and fortunately all we got was a lot of lightning and uh over an inch of rain pretty much across the whole area so it was uh it was a very pleasant evening for everybody except my uh thunderstorm anxious puppy dog but she went in her little storm cellar and <laughs> it's so funny i've got the pantry under the stairs of my old house that uh, has no windows and it's you know pretty low sound and she goes stands at the door when she hears a thunderstorm coming and says can i go in here please 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 and i never hear a peep out of her <laughs> and so uh we've learned how to deal with it yeah taylor's kind of the same way yeah we got pretty pretty light rain it's really dark out there so i don't know if we're going to get some more or not but i noticed something interesting this morning walking around with the dogs outside uh that that you talk about related to uh, cedar quite a bit yeah. the, we had a you know kind of light sprinkling rain and uh the uh, stone walkways under the trees this morning were still perfectly dry they, when the when the plants have been dry, they apparently are able to really suck in on a lot of that uh, moisture, and I guess a certain percentage just holds on the foliage. But it it really is a, a thing. It's uh, you know plants have just really evolved a lot of interesting things over their few million years and uh they are so adaptable and uh i don't know i just never get tired of watching nature i guess old malcolm beck was one of the one of the best of all times watching and recording what he saw but i can hardly take a walk around my ranch without seeing something new something different something that i either have never seen before or haven't seen in a long time and uh I just I feel sorry for people that don't open their eyes when they're out walking around. Well, I guarantee you that's right. I I got a little uh, thing to add uh, to what you were talking about on the cactus. I I've, I dealt when we were doing experiments on uh, trying to grow grass 
uh, out in the Vernon, Texas area where the uh-huh. oil recovery, you know, and the salt water had, had killed that land out there and been dead for 75 years. One of the things I ran into driving back and forth there was you could be going down a farm to market road and, and there would be prickly pear solid uh, on one side of the road on the land and on the other side totally clean. And I, I got to looking into it and looking at some of the things you were talking about, and Clint Josie's ranch, we, we, uh, he and I discussed one thing that's going on there. And by the way, I totally agree that scraping it up is the best thing to do if you got a bunch of it. And if you pile it into a pile mm-hmm. and add that molasses to it, it turns into the prettiest compost you have ever seen. <laughs> it really, really turns into a nice compost. Yes, sir. But, but the other thing that Clint and I talked about, and we looked at it specifically, and some of the some of the shots I took for the bug book came from some of this. When you when you go organic, when you go from using the chemical fertilizers over to just a simple change over to to uh, an organic program, you know, doing rotational grazing and using the manure, or start using mm-hmm. organic fertilizers or what, whatever you do to kick kick the biological activity of the soil up it's a fascinating thing that happens the the uh, uh cactus the prickly pear will simply die out that's and, interesting and it, it goes through a transition the first thing that you see is just a, a little if you look at real healthy plants versus ones that are starting to make the change you can see a difference you can see that hmm. the plant doesn't feel as, as well and then the next thing you see a little white insects <laughs> all over the plants the good old cochineal yeah the cochineal attack and take it out and and they'll just fade out they'll just go away now of course that takes a lot longer but it it's it's fascinating if somebody is making a transition from chemical uh, ways of doing things over to what we recommend it uh prickly pear will just not uh, continue to be a, a a problem you know that's that's an interesting observation i'd not really thought about that but uh i it certainly is true and um that's that's a, a great realization one more reason to to get away from the synthetic herbicides and fertilizers and uh mother nature knows best she'll put in the the really tough obnoxious things if you if you make the soil worse the worse the soil gets uh the worse the plants that inhabit it get i also stumbled into something thinking about uh the hair using hair this morning Mm -hmm. I'll, i'll send you uh what i ran into i ran into some research that's really good very very thorough about how silica works in the soil and how important it is and i i think it'd be interesting to look at it both ways piling it up like y'all were talking about but but secondly and maybe better uh to uh, till it into the soil across the entire garden uh it may be working by providing available silica i used to tell people uh, that silica is the most plentiful nutrient in the world. It's not. It's second, and I haven't even seen in this in this document what's first. <laughs> so I'm, I'm still I'm still looking for that. But but it goes into great uh, detail, or pretty awfully good detail, about how the silica helps plants. I look, that was specifically what I did a search for. How does silica uh, help? 
available silica help plants. And what it does is a couple of things. It, um, it, but the main thing it does, and, and this is pretty cool that I didn't understand before, it makes the epidermis of the plant tougher. Really? And when the epidermis of the plant is tougher, not only does it help repel insects, but also fungal diseases. And it, huh. it talks about it in pretty great detail in this stuff. I'll, I'll send you a copy of this stuff. But that's apparently uh, what what's going on there. And it talks about, a pro, I've never heard of this material. It's called uh, wallastonite. is a commercial rock mineral that has this real high availability of uh, silica in it. I think that one of the reasons that you and I and all organic gardeners have such a low pressure from insects and disease is that we're making available silica happen with lava sand and with compost and with fish and seaweed and all the molasses and all the things that we do. We're creating uh, biological activity which mm-hmm. helps to make those minerals bioavailable. It also talks about, this is something that really caught my attention too, and a lot of people might want to look into it more, and some of your uh, health expert friends might can help us with this. Apparently, if you take products from a human ingestion standpoint that have more available silica, it really helps your skin. Huh. You know, same uh-huh. same thing as the uh, plants, and it's uh, there's something about monosilicic acid that comes from uh, this silica, and there's uh, some products. There was one uh, I made a note of it somewhere. I don't know where I wrote it down, but there's some kind of a, uh, a product that you can buy that has real high levels of available silica in it that you can just take, you know, a, a pill. Oh, it's called Broccolite. Uh, Broccolite. Ah, huh. okay. Oh no, that's what you were talking about. I made my notes here. You were talking. Your guest was talking about broccoli. It helps with cognitive things. I've got so many notes here. I can't find where the uh, <laughs> silica product is. Anyway, I'll uh, find it and send it to you. But your your friend that you were talking to, or some of your other health uh, people, can probably tell us a good supplement that would help with this silica thing uh, above and beyond just eating uh, organic. Uh, produce all the time but that's probably the best thing you can do well i'll ask Rhonda about that because she's amazing and and the friend i was talking to on the phone is uh was diane who's our uh, gmo lady as well yeah and uh and she has she's made a career change she decided to get away and she was in uh some of the research trial research for a pharmaceutical company and said that was just kind of like working for the dark side so she's totally changed her uh her career path to being a health coach and uh, is doing extremely well and is learning a heck of a lot of fun new things that we can all benefit from. But um, oh, to the plants, is do you think that the best mechanism for uptake is through the soil, through the roots, or is this something we should be looking at in a foliar application or both? Uh, I don't know. That's something we need to look into. You know, one of the things that we did, Malcolm and I did years ago when we first did the uh, the first batches of Garrett juice, was he put lava sand in the compost, uh-huh. and there, was, there were the fines of the lava sand. And I've done this myself just personally, fines from the lava sand ending up going into 
uh, the garret juice. And I think especially in that case, you're going to be doing some good with the uh, foliar stuff. But I also ran in another interesting note in this research here, and it said that certain plants and peppers and tomatoes are in this group concentrate the silica more in the roots than in the stem tissue, than in the above ground tissue. Oh, that's so interesting. It's probably going to be best for us to get it uh, to really have it in the soil. There might be a, a lot of different ways to do it, and I think we're already doing it with you know a bunch of the things that we do. But we might be able to concentrate it better. I've noticed I, uh, on my tomatoes, my tomatoes look healthier than any I've ever had for me too uh, this time. And I'm drenching them over the top, I think I told you, with the garret juice. Not just spraying the foliage, but I'm just uh-huh. making the, uh, putting the garret juice in a big old watering can and just pouring it all over the top of the plant so it, it really thoroughly wets the plant, you know, above and below the leaves <laughs> and on the stems, and it drenches into the soil as well. And I'm not seeing any evidence of uh, early blight starting to show up or anything else uh, at all. Well, I'm going to give that a try. My problem is I'll have to extend my arms, my full height. My tomatoes yeah, are taller than I am this year. But And I think it also brings up something that, uh, that I, I don't think we talk about enough. But at the end of the season, I've gotten where I am a whole lot better about cutting things off at ground level than pulling them up. I know a lot of people at the end of the season, they go through and just pull out their old tomato plants, pull out everything. And I think, and I've, I haven't seen any negatives, there may be some that I just haven't discovered, but I'm, especially on something that has a pretty extensive root system like a tomato plant, I just whack it off the ground level and leave the roots to rot in the soil, and I feel like I'm leaving a lot more minerals and things like the silica in the soil, but I've not really thought about that particular benefit, but I think that's that would be a good process as well. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, especially if that's true, and I'm sure it is, that the tomato plants concentrate more silica there than above the ground. I think all of those things are are good. But there could be a benefit to putting it on the ground, you know, right around the mm-hmm. stem, as well as putting it in the soil. We probably need to try it all those different ways and see what uh, pops out. The other, the other, I planted my tomatoes later than you did. I was, you know, mm-hmm. didn't get around to it. So <laughs> I, I planted it after we would get in, started getting into the warmer weather, and then it cooled off again. But the color of the plants is darker and better than I've noticed before yeah. uh, as well. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Another thing that uh, I ran into, Judy uh, really likes a lot and is telling some of her friends about it I wanted to pass on to you. There is a viburnum that I have, and it's a real weird scientific name. It's called viburnum japonica. And it's called Viburnum acutissima. It's got about three different uh, scientific names. It's the one that has the real smooth, shiny leaves. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I I do, and um, there are a whole bunch of, I don't know whether new varieties, new hybrids, uh, but the shiniest leaf that I know, we originally called it Odoratissimum. The yeah. one that you'll run into a lot. That's a, not an acutisma. Well, what I was going to tell you about it, I bet I've experimented with a lot of different cuttings to take, uh-huh. bring in the house and put in water. And that plant will, 
I'm sure it's going to root because it doesn't fade out <laughs> at all. It just lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. And it's beautiful. So, usually, you know, I've got some uh, on each side of the fireplace outside in water, yeah. and uh-huh. I've got some. We've got some in the house now too. And man, it's lasting a long time. The other one that almost lasts as well is this. Uh, unusual oak that I have at the office called loquat leaf oak, and it's got yeah. a thicker yeah. leaf even than the Mexican white oak, the Monterey oak, and it's it's holding up. The only th- difference with it is it did fade in color just a little bit. The viburnum, you know, just still looks like it did the day it was cut off the plant. That's most interesting, and and I like that viburnum. It's one that uh, is compared to the sandanqua. The uh, um, some of the others is that that whole group. There's one called chindo. There's another they call mirror leaf, and I think they're all just you know varieties of the odoratissimum. But they'll grow in a pretty fair amount of shade, and yep. they're dense enough to be a nice sound barrier and a nice visual barrier too. And once again, uh, something you can grow in the shade as opposed to the sun and once again, a hundred percent, a hundred and ten percent better than the old red tip Photinia. So yeah, it's a good plant. It's a very good plant. Yeah. We uh, we lost some here back in the eighty three, eighty four, three. And I think, and I was one of the few people really pushing it back in those days anyway. But it stopped being used as much. And you know, now I've had these at the house under the organic program uh, through at least two years where we had. 50 degree drop, you know, in one day, yeah, yeah. and haven't had any uh, any damage to it at all. I had a little bit of damage to my bay, my huge bay tree in the back. One big limb got killed on it, but I didn't see any even cosmetic damage to the viburnum. That's interesting, and I wonder once again if the silica may pay, play a role in that as Good. well. Uh, yeah, you're you're making well, you me know think. What, I, you know what word pops up quite a bit in this research? What's that? Stress. Uh-huh. Yep. Relieving stress, it, you know, it's the basis of everything we talk about. You mm-hmm. know, kick it, kicking up biological activity and increasing the stress. That's what it's saying that the, that the silica does both in, uh, internally and, and apparently to the epidermis of the plant. That's a pretty cool uh, little detail to, to learn about. It really is, and you're making me think, you know, I just I I thoroughly enjoy all the different things that uh Stuart Frankie does and it sounds like I'm going to get him need to get him to micronize that air cyclone that he has that's such a useful tool and of course he uses it a lot in some of the pharmaceutical stuff he's doing with the oleanderin now but uh maybe I can get him to take a little bit of a good lava sand or do you know a, a different mineral that might even be better uh, to get it down to just a powder-like consistency where with agitation we might be able to spray it as a foliar spray. And, and I would think, like everything else, when you, when you micronize it like that, you're, you're opening up so much more surface area that it probably would be the uptake, since we've learned that plants eat as well as drink their nutrients, uh, might be fun to, to get some very, very finely powdered. And you're talking about fines, uh, you know, in the, in the bottom of the bin of, uh, Lava sand makes me think that maybe if we did that intentionally, it'd be a fun product to play with in the uh, in the landscape. Well, I was thinking about Medina too. They may even already have an available silica product that you know we just don't talk about that much. So we need to talk to Stuart 
uh, and the guys over there about all those ideas, and, and have them look into the Wallace tonight uh, mineral specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you, the other thing I would do, too, I, I, we may have discussed this some time ago, but the new uh, lava sand that's so, that has such high paramagnetism called right. Cinderite, Right. If we're going to do a, a lava sand into a micronized deal. That would be the one to do for sure. That's that's a real good point. I'm making notes as we go here. And there may yeah. be a, a way to, you know, one of the old product, I don't know if it's even still around anymore, that, that uh, Malcolm and I came up with uh, that was a mixture of rock minerals. Is it yeah. even on the market anymore? I don't think so. Since Waste Management bought Gardenville, they've dropped yeah, a whole lot of the really good things. Yeah, I haven't. You know, it was, it was a mixture of lava sand and diatomaceous earth and granite sand and basalt and, you know, uh, maybe a couple of other things. And we may be able to come up with something that would be this cinderite lava sand, this wallace tonight, and maybe hair and, and maybe some, <laughs> some other uh, things. Would be and and the cinderite, yeah, that cinderite, of course, has such the high paramagnetism level, and who knows how that plays into all of this. But uh there are just there are a lot of things we know anecdotally that it's just fascinating when, like you're talking about, finding some research that kind of explains how they work. And it's not only interesting, but it just creates or helps us think of different ways that we may use it more effectively. So, yeah, I'm, I'm getting a whole page of notes here from our discussion as well. The, uh, the diatomaceous earth reminds me of one thing that I promised I would ask. Uh, one of our regular callers was talking about and, you know, Nature's Creation and the old uh, Nature's Guide uh, were the original ones to come out with a dry molasses that doesn't clump or cake. But he was talking about some of the others, and, of course, it's one of the worst things out there about turning it into a rock uh, from many companies. But he was said somebody had told him about mixing diatomaceous earth with dry molasses to keep it from clumping as badly. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, I think somebody actually put that on the market uh, huh. at one point. I don't know if it's still out there or not. Um, people have experimented with all kinds of things, and they kind of don't sell. They don't get you know enough yeah. uh, interest to be uh, cost-effective, and then they go away. So, yeah, something along those lines would probably be good. Would you have any guess as to what kind of proportions you were using if somebody like James wanted to give that a try? He apparently has a good, very low cost source of, uh, you know, one of the, uh, one of the molasses products. But, uh, would you say just experiment or do you have a guess as to how much DE yeah, you would add to it? Putting some in there and see how much <laughs> you can, uh, uh, get in there without it turning into a, a problem. No, I, I really wouldn't have a, a good guess on the percentage. Just start experimenting with it, I guess. Yeah, that would. That, that speaking of stress, going back to one more thing for a minute. This, sure. this uh, that word appearing so much in a scientific paper like that, I was really glad to see because mm-hmm. you know we've talked about the health of plants for a long time and immune systems in plants, and we've gotten you know a lot of criticism from the uh, so-called experts out there about that, that approach. So it was good to see this. I've got a little plant that showed off something pretty interesting at the office. It's a little pink crepe myrtle that uh-huh. I got from a, from a company here in the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I really like the color of the uh, of the foliage and the flowers, really dramatic. But it did pretty well for a couple of years, and then it, it just developed 
uh, scale like crazy in black sooty mold and just looked looked terrible. And I had planted it myself, and it looked like it had you know a flare showing okay. And I thought, you know, you ought to do what you tell everybody else to do and <laughs> do this thing more uh, dramatically. And I did one day, and lo and behold, it had a false um, it had a false flare. It flared out almost like it had been grafted there, and I don't know if that was really what happened there or something else, but uh, down below that was the true flare, you know, another four inches, three or four inches down below that. And I got it down and exposed it real dramatically, and that's all I did. I didn't even do the the entire sick tree treatment to it. It gets fertilized with organic fertilizer, Uh but I didn't do the whole sick tree treatment procedure. This year... And I started noticing it late in the winter. All that scale, and I didn't spray it with anything. I didn't spray it with mm-hmm. orange oil or anything. I said, the heck with that. In fact, I was going to take the little tree out. And toward the end of the uh, winter, I started looking at it, and the white scale all over it looked like it was a duller color. It looks like it was kind of turning gray. And I scratched around on it, and lo and behold, it looked like it was dying. Today, the new growth is perfectly clean. There's not one scale insect on the plant. Just totally eliminated it. You know, it's nothing but exposing the flare. And uh, and taking away the stress. And the uh, stress taking away yeah. that's exactly right. The stress yeah. the stress apparently sets up on a plant quickly and powerfully if the flare is covered. Just simply because it's not able to breathe like it's supposed to breathe. Uh, it's just so interesting, and when you look at nature, again, you look at a lot of trees. I remember my first trip ever to the uh, rainforest up in the Pacific Northwest and reading in one of their little explanatory things about how some of those majestic from the redwoods to the big old Douglas firs and things, that the seeds don't germinate well in the ground. They they land on the on a fallen log. And they call them nurse logs or whatever, and that's how the healthy trees grow, is they actually start out two to four feet above the ground. And you then when you go back and look at some of the mature 300-year-old, 2,000-year-old trees, depending on the species, if you study enough, you can see that they actually started out above ground level, which, you know, gives you the best exposed root flare in the world. I've said for a long time, and uh some people don't believe me, including my wife, that it's impossible <laughs> to have a tree planted too high. <laughs> yeah. So that, yep. would, that would back that up. Absolutely. Well, I found some more, uh, a few of the ginkgo. We had one person join the uh, Organic Club of America. That we uh, promised some ginkgo seed, and I found the end of it. I had a raccoon or a possum or something get into the big supply I had in the greenhouse and to eat up eat most of it, but I'm going to send you some of the last available ginkgo seed here so you can give that a, a try there in your greenhouse to see how Very good. I'll look forward to that. And I was going to make it over to Rhonda's this week and uh, get some of the trauma comfrey. Um, I want Roberta had the experience of taking a fall and breaking the end of her elbow called the Electronon that I really want to give that a try too. And, uh, and I'm going to send you some of it when I, when I get from her because yeah, I've got some things to come your way. I want to give you something to think about this week. And it was on my list of things to talk about. And of course we come up <laughs> just whatever direction we take off on, but we do spend <clears throat> 
a lot of time talking about planting mistakes like burying the plants too deeply and a lot of other things. But you being landscape architect by training, I'd love to take a little time one Saturday and talk about landscape design mistakes that you come across because we've got so many people and our business has just been incredible the past few weeks, but so many people out working on redesigning their landscapes and you've got the training as a landscape architect far more than I ever would dream of but I think it'd make a real interesting might make an interesting sure. column but sure. landscape design mistakes uh, as well as planning mistakes and I'd love to have that discussion and get your take on it because it's one of the many things you do so well. Yeah I wrote a book you know years ago called Landscape Design Texas Style whatever that's exactly. supposed to mean. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, we can talk about the uh, concepts, and they've been refined over the years anyway, and we'll uh, we'll do that um, next time if you want to. Unless something more more timely and appropriate comes along, I think we could we spend a long time talking and never run out of topics. So, uh, once again, uh, you guys enjoy these wonderful, cool mornings. Uh, every time we have a, a morning like this, it was 61 at my house. Roberta said it was 59 at her house. I just think, well, I wonder if this is the last cool weather we'll see till fall. And it's sure, sure is beautiful weather to get out and work in the garden in the yard. So, uh, as always, thanks again for taking a little bit more of uh, your Saturday morning with us. And, uh, um, oh gosh, had some, uh, folks talking to Doug this week about getting on the, on the video on the organic certification program. Everybody's just so interested and, uh, just so appreciate all the things you do, Howard. Well, thanks to what all y'all do there, and uh, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Look forward to it. Thank you, sir. All right. <laughs> Goodbye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone line. It's going to be Robin and Maria and Don and Kurt, and Robin is up first. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Bob. Thank you Good so morning. much for all you're doing for us. Oh, well, it's my great uh, pleasure. <laughs> I'll make it quick here. I have a plumeria that's probably about seven years old, and it's about it's in a big uh, container, and it's um, it, I inherited it. So mm-hmm. it was planted very um, low down in the container, uh-huh. and I want to add some other sticks of plumeria to it. Is it going to be okay to add the soil up like maybe six inches? That will kill the big plant. Yeah, that'd be a real bad idea. Yeah, here's what you do, Robin, to make that happen, and that is that... um, you will lift the plant physically. You'll probably actually turn it over on its side and slide it out of the pot. And I don't know yeah. if you want to go with the same size pot or with a bigger pot, but add six inches of soil underneath the plant. And then you can just okay. dig little small holes around your big plant and add your new plants to it. But uh, it's a real good question, and it's a real common problem because that soil may you know, uh, settle, may wash away, gradually breaks down. But when we want to raise the level of soil in a pot, what we need to do is ease the plant out of the pot, put the new soil underneath the bottom of the root zone, 
put the plant back in the pot and fill in around the sides. And because, you know, the way the pots taper down, that's going to leave you a nice little loose soil, new boundary around the edges where you can plant in those new plum areas. And that's what I would do, and I think you're just going to end up with a prettier plant than ever. But uh, I sure would do it that way rather than piling soil up around the existing trunk of the plant. That, That would be hard on it. Okay, and that's that's what I would normally do with any other yeah. plant. But the reason yeah. I was wondering about the plumeria is because when you you know you break off a stick mm-hmm. and you just put it in the ground, right, or put it in a pot, and and it grows. Yeah, so and that's what it, why I was it, thinking maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, one of these days when we have a blackboard, I'll draw it out and we'll talk about xylem and phloem and cambium and all the reasons that that won't work. But that's hard to paint a picture on the radio. So I uh, hope we'll have the have a, a time, one of these seminars that I can go over that, make it a little bit more evident. But no, you do much better to uh, add the soil underneath and then plant around the edges. Okay. Ah, good. I'm glad I know what to do. Okay, now I have some cannas, and mm-hmm. they are they are a variegated yellow and green leaf. They're very yeah. pretty. Well, it's this, called trop- this, tropicana. Okay, they got um, they have like a like have brown streaks in the leaves, like a some kind of fungus. Do I correct that with cornmeal? Mm, wouldn't hurt, but I think it's more likely a physical problem, a stress issue. Um, I would fertilize. I'd probably increase your watering a bit, and I think the newer leaves will come out without uh, that vascular damage to it. So, wouldn't hurt to you know put a little corn water tea on. But I think it's more a stress issue that they've probably gotten a little dry at some points while they're doing that. Okay, good. So I, I was going to throw them out. But I won't. No, don't do that. (laughs) Okay. Well, Robin, I appreciate it. You get out and have a wonderful weekend. Let me get Maria in here. Um, Good morning, Maria. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I'm having problems with my roses. Uh, I have a a white rose, a pink variegated one, and a red Mm -hmm. rose that uh, are all having that black spot. Yep. Yeah, it's a very common problem when we have cooler, cloudier weather. I can't explain why it is that roses grow so well in Portland, where they have weather that like that all the time. But here in South Texas, everybody is fighting probably worst black spot that we've seen in years. Um, I would do two things. I would put some cornmeal, whole ground cornmeal, in the ground underneath the plants because, uh, you know, literally this oftentimes gets started when it gets splashed up out of the soil. The second thing I would do is be sure that you try to water the ground. Be sure that you don't have a sprinkler system or something spraying water on the leaves of the rose bushes because that's how the black spot really gets started. And thirdly, if you will get in the habit of spraying, and actually something you can spray on the foliage of the roses is either a liquid garlic product or make some of that uh, cornmeal tea 
because these stimulate so many beneficial fungi on the leaves that there's just not room enough for the black spot and the powdery mildew and the other fungal problems to get started. But uh, I would definitely do some corn water tea. I would definitely do some garlic. And um, and I think you'll I think you'll get it under control. And as we get back to hotter, drier weather, which we know is coming, it's going to be a lot less of a problem anyway. But that's that's the one downside of our long, cool spring. Uh, I did sprinkle the corn cornmeal, whole ground cornmeal around the. It, they're all in pots because yeah. I can't seem to water uh, them enough in the ground because this is sure. a Stockdale, which is sandy soil. Right. And so I got them all in pots, and I don't water them until they're they're dry, like you say. But well, I dry I dry on the, the surface, yeah, dry on right. the surface, but never bone dry. Right, I I do that, and then when I water them, you know, I let the water drain all the way through, and then I don't water them again for a couple of weeks. Well, that's uh, if you can go that long between waterings, they're not getting enough sunlight. Um, I can't imagine a rose in a pot that doesn't need water every three or four days, especially with your loose soil. So um, be sure they're getting pretty strong sun all day. And um, one other thing you might do, if possible, is be sure those pots are sitting in a saucer. And when you water, let some water stand in that saucer because it will be drawn back up into the soil, and it'll help moisten that root ball a little bit more thoroughly. Uh if you're only needing to water every two weeks, um, well, that's yeah. When 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 it gets hotter, I do water them more often. Okay. You know, and I do stick my finger in the soil and water them that way. But uh, well, I mean, go I with move them into full sun because they were in, the sun out here just burns everything. Oh, I know. They're in partial yeah. shade, so I moved them all into to direct sunlight and. Uh, well, I I think you're going to find they're going to do better now. But I do some garlic and I do some corn water tea. And uh, tell you what, need to keep going here. I've got one more break to do, and then we'll finish up with Don and Kurt. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, quickly back to the phone lines. It's Don's turn. Good morning, Don. Good morning, sir. I'll, I'll be quick. Uh, Jerusalem Sage. Uh-huh. Uh, we have we have several of those. Those are beautiful plants with beautiful flowers. My question is: after the the flower has withered, should should I snip those heads or or leave them be? It's up to you. It's not going to make them bloom again. It'll make them look a little bit nicer. My biggest problem with Jerusalem sage is it gets huge. It just kind of takes over an area. And if you feel like you need to reduce the size, immediately after blooming is the best time to cut them back. But as far as deadheading, which is what we call cutting off the old blooms, did cosmetically it helps, the plant could care less. Uh, I see. Okay. And then the other thing is uh, I have several mountain laurels, and I've been battling this brown spot. Uh, I've used this uh, copper fungicide spray. Yeah. Uh, I've made made about three applications, um, but I, I still have the problem. Any suggestions? Get down and expose that root flare. It's almost, almost every mountain laurel planted is too deep in the soil. Normally, if you'll remove the soil back to where you really see the roots flaring out, uh, it'll go away with no spraying whatsoever. 
Okay, great. Thank you. And and one last question. Acubias? Acuba. Uh, Acuba. Acuba. I'm sorry. Great plants. Uh, they're doing well, but every once in a while we'll get some leaves that just turn black. Usually that's when the sun hits them and they just sunburn because they'll take no hot okay. sun at all. So uh, it's it's usually just a sun issue. And I appreciate the call. Let's get Bill in here for the last two minutes of the show. I'm sorry, Kurt, for the last two minutes of the show. Good morning, Kurt. Uh, good morning. Um, I have two uh, Eve's necklace, uh-huh. um, and I now have discovered eight more. Oh, good. Uh, anywhere from six inches to uh, two feet. Right. Tall. Uh, uh, one, uh, can I transplant them? They are first cousin to a mountain laurel, and as such, they are very difficult to transplant. Uh, small ones like that, if your soil is deep, you have a, a chance of doing it. Cool weather is the best time to do it. Uh, they also grow easily from seed, but uh, uh, if you're going to transplant, just treat it like a mountain laurel. Treat that root ball as an egg and do your best not to break it. But uh, they do grow easily from seed, and I'm sure you probably have some of those uh, where the tree gets its name, those long seed pods. Okay, so th- so they are coming off seed and not the root. Correct, correct. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. All right, well, that takes care of me. I, I okay. was brief enough. Hey, you were did a very good job, and you leave me time to tell you that uh, uh, the one thing about Eve's necklace, if you're in an area that you have a lot of deer, they really do love to nibble on them. So put uh, a little uh, fence. That, yeah. yeah, that's how I discovered them, because I started, uh, I saw them, and I saw that uh, three of them were eaten. Well, you know, put some little cages around them. A lot of times that happens when we cut the cedar and other things that are protecting them away, but... Uh, it's like I say, same genus, totally different plant from Mount Laurel, but uh, beautiful plants in their own right. And if you want to start some more, it's easier with them than it is with the Mount Laurels. And uh, we'll talk again. Everybody else, join me again tomorrow morning. We do this from eight till eleven, and then it's time for the pet show. Get out and enjoy this beautiful day. 